welcome back to our sixth episode of Talking Their Language. Today I'm bringing you something a little bit different. We've got a new series of podcasts called Why It Works with renowned EAL author Rob Sharples and Twinkle's EAL content writer Joe Thompson. We're going to be breaking down different topics and showing you why the resources you know and love work in the classroom and discussing the evidence behind them. We've got over 12,000 specialist EAL resources on site and we can't wait to look at why they're working in your setting. So hi Rob, hi Joe, welcome to Why It Works and in our first session we're focusing on oracy. Most of our listeners will know what oracy is and why they're currently doing it in the classroom but can you tell us a bit more about it Rob and why it's so important? Hi Anne, hi Joe. So oracy is more than just talking, it's being able to articulate ideas and develop your understanding through spoken language but also being able to use that spoken language to engage with other people. So I think the first thing that's really important to, to recognise is that oracy isn't just talking and it's also, you know, it's not a contrast to literacy. It's not something else you have to pay attention to. That purposeful use of language is really fundamental to literacy because we're talking here about children developing their ideas through oral language first and then they can reach that higher level of complexity in their writing. Yeah, that's true, Rob. Joe, what's your experience of oracy in the classroom? Hi, Rob. Hi, Helen. So I think teachers know the importance of talk and speaking and listening. Um, and that's something that um, teachers are quite familiar with. I think it's important to acknowledge the importance of understanding alongside just listening. Um, you can listen to something quite easily. Um, but have you actually understood it? Have the children understood what you're asking of them um, or expecting of them? I think that's an important aspect of it to um, consider. I think teachers know that we should be doing lots of speaking, listening and understanding activities in the classroom and they they do do that and that's important, that's great. Um, I think the next step on from that is maybe understanding why those activities work and how we can help teachers to get to the next level almost um, thinking about the kind of language you're expecting the children to use, um, if you've modelled that, if you've scaffolded that, how can you ensure that they're using the language, the target language that you that you want them to? That's true, Joe. Modelling is so, so important. I mean, which oracy resources have we got on the Twinkle website that you think are particularly useful for our listeners? I know we've got thousands on there, Joe. Um, but which ones would you like to pick out or which categories do you think um, our listeners should be so, signposting? Yes, you're right, to? Helen. We have we do have thousands and thousands. Um, I think the ones that I've um, used particularly successfully, I've pulled out um, to talk about today. And hopefully between Rob and I, we can kind of put together why they work um, and how they work. So first of all, any kind of matching activities or sorting activities, there's... Um, uh, some odd one out cards on the on the website and they're available on lots of different themes and there's no right or wrong really answer with those ones um, the children just see three illustrations and they have to just uh, pick which one they believe to be the odd one out and then articulate why that one is the odd one out and there's no right or wrong and I've used it lots of times and you come up with lots of different reasons as to why you've chosen the one that you have um, but it encourages children to be able to um, think through their ideas articulate their ideas and, and argue with each other and challenge each other when they don't necessarily always agree so I think that's a, uh, a really good one that's 
really easy to incorporate into classroom practice and you could do it on any you know whatever topic you were doing you could just uh, take three illustrations from there and that's a simple simple activity that you can do yeah it'd be a great use as a starter as well wouldn't it in some classrooms yeah I've used it a lot as a it's a great way to start a topic even yeah okay and what other categories have we got there Joe? Um, so what else have we got? So we've got some um, quiz games, quiz cards. So they kind of can work like uh, riddle activities. So I've done, um, I've used them as, there's a picture on there and I've kind of used them as what am I? And I've described them to the children and the children have had to try and guess the name of the, the actual thing. So that's the target language I've gone after there. Or I've played it um, where the children aren't allowed to say the word that it is, but they can use lots of other language around that um, to try and help the other children guess what it is. And that's always um, quite a popular one. There's lots of sentence building activities. So they support with um, the syntax and um, grammar and the structure of the sentence. Um, they're really helpful because often I get asked, you know, they, they're struggling to form their sentences and build their sentences. How can I help them to practice that? So they're, they're great ones as well barrier games we've got loads of barrier games and I think lots of teachers know um, what barrier games are and that they're important um, but I think it's key to think about the kind of language that the children need to use in order to access those barrier games so for example if you're playing a barrier game about the seaside have you pre-taught the vocabulary that needs to go alongside that barrier game have you modeled how yeah. to ask um, the questions appropriately have you modeled how to um, answer those questions and do they have that language um, available to them because if they don't then they're going to obviously struggle to describe um, a scene to somebody else so they're a great one um, and then conversational prompts I think are so important so we've got things like talking cards and um, sentence starters we've got question cards where the answer is the beginning of the answer is modelled to them and it just scaffolds their thinking really and gives them that structure um, I found lots of times you'll ask a question and they they may have understood the question but they struggle to then understand which parts um, they need to put in their answer and how they structure their answer so the conversation prompts are really helpful I think because they give them that structure and then you've scaffolded that bit for them already and then they just need to fill in the last part of the answer so they're particularly helpful I think too. Rob can you talk about how they can develop um, oracy then and how they'll be useful in the classroom? Yeah I mean I think it's a fantastic the well I'm gonna say rich but it's an enormous range of resources isn't it there's thousands and thousands of different <laughs> things you could do and I like the way we talk about them in different categories I think one way to think about how we use them is to match it to the students so obviously you've got primary and secondary but I think mostly here is about the, the stage of proficiency that students are at. So um, one of the really important principles for EAL pupils as we develop their oral language is making sure that we don't keep, uh, don't keep to the really, really simple just because they're at a low level of proficiency or, or because they're at a relatively early stage of the curriculum. Um, so um, matching and sorting and organising games, for example, including odd one out games, they seem really simple and, and maybe even more oriental, oriented towards really young pupils. But you can imagine adapting something like that from using farmyard animals, which is one of the activities that's really good on the site, to um, uh, something in, uh, you know, maybe a, a key stage three or key stage four uh, science lesson. 
one thing you're doing when you're matching and you're sorting and you're organizing is you're using those those higher order thinking skills. You're trying to understand connections between items and groups of items, hierarchies, and how different characteristics um, are, are related to each other and so on. So you can see those matching, sorting, organizing games, including Odd One Out, they, they can go right across the phases and they can really connect to um, all that curriculum and subject learning that's so important. One of the big, big risks with EAL is that we focus on low level of proficiency means we have to keep everything really low level. And I think those are brilliant examples of how you can keep the activity simple, but the content can be much more sophisticated at the right level. I think barrier games are really interesting, John. It's interesting you mentioned them because um, you're absolutely right. They're quite tricky to get right in a way. So first of all, you've got to set them up uh, and... Um, I would say I've never been involved in a barrier game where someone wasn't peeking. And so, so you've got this idea, it's very easy just to peer over and copy down. So, okay, assuming it's all it's all set up right, there's that need for talks. So the students have to interact with each other. And it's one of the key principles, of course, of effective talk, that there's an information gap. And that's what the barrier provides. So the barrier games that we've got here with a, a literal barrier um, on, on a lot of the ones on the site, but you could do it just with what you call a jigsaw text. That's a text where... It's got different gaps and students each have part of the information. They've got to reconstruct it together. So anything where there's an information gap, whether it's because they've only got part of each or because there's a, a physical barrier or something else, that's really, really helpful. Because the way that you get the information is using all the language that you need in the classroom. So you're asking, you're also guessing or hypothesizing, you're um, reconstructing. So all these, again, all these skills that um, allow us to to be effective language learners, but also effective learners in general, are really, really positive. The one that a caution that I think I'd bring in is around the sentence builders. So you mentioned that question about people, about pupils struggling to form sentences and what do you do? And I think this is a, you know, I, I spend a lot of time um, thinking and, and talking to people about, uh, particularly those kids who arrive in upper secondary with very, very low levels of English, you know, what do you do? But actually this, this is across all the phases. If pupils are really struggling to form sentences, I think our instinct is to teach them sentence structure. And that's really important. But one thing it can do is it can cut out all the context and all the interaction, all the exchange of meaning and the information gap and all the things that we actually use language for and reduce it to um, a set of patterns or morphosyntactic patterns and, and lexis in our, in our linguistic vocabulary, but basic grammar and vocabulary. And that's not much use to pupils because that's very hard to connect them back to real life. And I think what a lot of these games do is the students are exposed to the patterns they need to use and they're encouraged to use them for meaningful purposes. So one thing about an information gap is you need to exchange that information. Um, a good example of this is, is if you go if you go in a classroom, it's really, really fun to see. Well, I, I say fun, but within the context, right? Big air quotes happening um, behind the microphone here. A uh, fun uh cpd activity so when you go around you say and uh, helen do you have any brothers or sisters do you helen yes i do uh, how, how many brothers and sisters do you have you're welcome to make this up if you want one sister okay great i have one sister repeat i have one sister, I have one sister. thank you uh joe do you have any brothers and sisters i do no no repeat i have, I have two sisters Right, so we get very quickly, like it doesn't mean anything. You're just repeating the language. Thank you. Um, for for the sake of it to practice that pattern, but of course it's it's 
basically useless for the pupils because they they can't we can't connect it to anything so just that that idea that if you don't genuinely need to communicate something if you're not exchanging information or, or articulating or just doing something that is actually useful with the language if if you don't know something the other person doesn't or if you don't have something you really want to say then it's not really going to make any difference because the brain will just discount it so that idea about all of these yes sentence patterns but if you're if you're exposing the pupils to examples of that language, if you're modeling it, um, and then if you're getting them to use it, that's going to be so much more effective than actually just sitting them down and explicitly teaching the grammar structures. You can still do that, but if you do it in that bigger context, then of course, all that use is going to be really, really powerful. And, and then, then the explicit teaching becomes a backup. It helps to clarify, but it, it's not your main strategy. And I think, um, the sentence builder games are quite fun for that because what you're doing, especially a lot of them, you've got cards with different parts of speech, different um, vocabulary. And what the pupils are doing is they're, you know, it's a card game. They're putting it together. So they're putting it together, which means they're actually using their knowledge to reconstruct um, a meaningful sentence. And if you, if you, you can take what you find on the Twinkle website for that and easily adapt it to whatever you're teaching in that moment. And, and you can go from that. And really, you can do that even with sentences to reconstruct a paragraph of academic text with, with more advanced learners as well. So that idea of how sentence builders can, can help you move from like teaching a structure that's really not going to sink in to um, reinforcing and supporting the kind of rich language in the classroom. I think those are, yeah, really, really good. Um, it's important to note that all of our Twinkle resources can be used in um, any language. I know we've got a lot of dual language resources, Joe, on site, um, but also multilingual talks fundamental in the classroom. I know it's sometime, um, something we have spoken about in the past um, that teachers can be a bit scared of um, in the classroom. Joe, have you got any experience of that in your setting? Yeah, so it's something I've done a lot um, in the in the past and I continue to do because I think it's really helpful I understand that it's quite intimidating I think for teachers to if you're saying right you can speak in that and and you can speak in that and and then all of a sudden um the teacher doesn't necessarily know 100% what children are saying and if they're on task or if they're discussing something they perhaps shouldn't be discussing and you you lose that sense of control that teachers um we like, like to have to <laughs> yeah we do so um I, I understand that it can be quite intimidating perhaps maybe something that's a little bit daunting and you think oh I don't know about that um I've done it lots and lots of times because I just think it makes so much sense um and there's um lots of research around now that says that it is a sensible thing to do so why wouldn't you present something in in English alongside their home language so that they can make those links they can see those connections they can understand similarities differences and always with children you need to start with what they already know and their prior knowledge they need something that they can hook new learning onto so if you're presenting them with something that they can understand and that they can read um I think that's a really helpful thing to do. So I've done it lots of times. I've done it where I think it works particularly well in maths um, with word problems. Um, and the language is often quite tricky in some of the word problems to unpick what the question is asking um, and what they're expected to do. If you gave them the maths, then they'd be fine. But the language sometimes gets in the way of that. So often I've presented word problems in English and in their home language, and that really has helped them to make the links um, between them and to help them understand what the 
what the question is actually asking and get to grips with some more of that language. And interestingly, I did it in a training session the other day where I gave trainee teachers, I gave them a Romanian um, maths word problem and I just put it on the board. I said, right, off you go. What's the answer? It had no visual cues in it. It was just the text. Um, and I didn't give them any context. I just said, there's your problem. Off you go. What's the answer? And it was really interesting to see the different strategies that they employed to try and work that out. So they were looking at languages that they could speak between them. They were trying to um, find words that looked familiar. So were there any words that looked familiar in English that they maybe were trying to equate to a similar meaning? Um, lots of different strategies they were using, but they found it quite tough. And then the next part of the slide was the visual cues. So I gave them the objects that the word problem was about. So then all of a sudden they could work out which part of the sentence was the noun. And then I gave them the symbol of the operation. So it was a divide symbol. So I gave them that. So then suddenly they've got a whole nother layer of um, understanding that they could, um, they could then take that and use and apply it to try and work out um, the problem. So we eventually, we solved the problem and then I put, I asked them what would have been the importance of putting um, the English version alongside the Romanian version? How would that have helped them? Um, so that, and then we drew all over it and made links between the two. Um, and I think that really helped deepen their understanding as to why that would be a helpful thing to do with children learning EAL in your classroom. It's just vital, isn't it? I, I mean, it just makes it so clear when you, when you tell that story, the the massive barrier and and I said that what do you say Joe to people who are just worried because you mentioned people feel quite anxious and I think really justifiably about having languages they can't understand in the classroom when yet you're you're trained to know your pupils to know what's happening in your classroom to be the authority in that room and then there's stuff that you don't have any access to what's your what's your go-to explanation for I guess reassuring people um, I think to say that it's it's okay to do that. I think to have um, an agreement perhaps with the children in your class where we're going to discuss this part in your home languages and then we're going to come back together and then we're going to try and put something together in English and then we're going to go back off and then we'll do something in that. But the output then is going to be, the outcome is going to be in English. And so having those agreements that this part of the lesson where you can discuss, you know, in whichever language would be helpful to you. And then, then in this part of the lesson, we're going to do something in English. So I think having that um, conversation with, with learners is really helpful. I think just, I would say to teachers, just try it. Try it and see the impact that it has and how much the children get from doing it because that's the only reason I, I know that it works is because I've tried it and it makes sense to me. And then I've seen the depth of level their understanding goes to then when they are able to do that um plus it's massively valuable and important for them to feel that their language is valued that their language is appreciated um that we're you know we're evaluate uh, we're valuing and celebrating their language um and i think maybe we don't do that enough in class i think sometimes we'll say oh tell you know tell me what that word is in your language um and that's maybe as far as it goes. Um, and I always try to, you know, I'm always reading stories in dual languages and I like to have all the languages up in my room because I think it's, it's a massively important message for the children. And OK, we're teaching in English and we're assessing in English in the UK, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't mean that their languages aren't welcome in our classroom. 
Oh, that's really important because the evidence tells us pretty strongly um, that being able to use your own language, it makes a, a massive difference to your ability to learn as well. So there's a series of, of, sort of theories that really started emerging in the 70s in the work of Jim Cummings um, that I like to think of it as a mixing deck, right? So, so you can you can fade up English as you fade down the other language, but but if you fade down the other language, then all of a sudden it goes dead quiet for <laughs> no obvious benefit. But if, for children who have been educated in another country and in another language, they've got access to those concepts and to that knowledge through any language. It does take a bit of time, perhaps, to to get that in place. It needs a bit of practice. But um, if you're if you're using their first language, especially with children who arrive, that means they can access their learning, their prior learning they've done in, in their previous schools. If we um, if we take away that language and we only use English, you really can't build on the knowledge you've developed already um, until your English has developed. And essentially, what we're doing, we're just enforcing this big gap in their education when they can only develop English fluency when we could do both at the same time. And I think that's that idea of um, just try it, I think it's probably really important. It's a brilliant approach. Yeah. yeah. Really good. Well, that's the only way I've learned that it works. I've, I've done it a lot and read about it almost later mm. because I've seen that it works and then I've gone away and thought, well, that was really interesting. What actually just happened there, Joe? I've no idea. So I, I've gone away and then kind of read around. And thought, oh, OK, yeah, actually, that does make a lot of sense. And I've seen it work. So I know it works from um, practice and I've read as to why it works. So then that just um, confirms to me that, yeah, that is the right thing to be doing. I think a lot of people are listening will, will have heard the work of Pauline Gibbons, um, an Australian academic, uh, one of my <laughs> one of my heroes. Um, so, but but her work, I mean, she had this book, uh, I think it was 2002, that might have been the second edition. So um, Pauline Gibbons' work w- was about oracy in the classroom and how we can scaffold language for bilingual pupils. And and she she worked in this idea of a mode continuum, how we move from spoken language um, through to written language. I think our most famous example is with a, a science experiment. But we're doing I think we're writing up a blog post after this uh after this chat, aren't we? So yes, I'll, yeah, I'll make yeah. I'll make sure to put it in there. Um but that, that idea that you start with spoken language around an activity and then it moves progressively to maybe recounting that as you as you tell another partner or a group, um maybe as you speak up to the class um or tell the teacher or maybe as you write it up as a report there's these stages where you move from that quite informal spoken talk up to your most correct, your most accurate, probably most written-like language. And it strikes me that there's a really important role for other languages in that, because if if, you're, if all pupils are already moving from more spoken-like language to more written-like language, um, bearing in mind that you know some of the written like language is actually said out loud. Like, so you know you stand up and and tell the class what happened. You might have written it down first. So the the boundaries in speaking and writing probably better thought of as as spoken like and written like. And um, there's loads of opportunities to weave in different languages. I think just in the way you say. So if you're if you're not sure um, about using people's languages in the classroom, I would say. Definitely just try it, but also try it in the pair work. So you can use whatever language you want to discuss it, but can you tell us about it in 
English or make your notes in English or even better, let them use whatever they want for that stage. And then the next stage is get them to, okay, can you write that up in English and your language? So just make those notes. And then from those bilingual notes, can you um, tell the group at the next table? So maybe swap some people around. Um, can you tell them what you did, but in English, but referring to those notes? And so it's that idea of, you know, the mixing deck, not at, at the scale of the school year, but at the scale of, you know, activity by activity in the classroom. You can you can bring up the English and bring down the other languages and vice versa, and that just gives so much scaffolding as well. I think the evidence behind that is is really solid because what are people doing? They're they're rehearsing their ideas, you know. They're 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 making decisions about when they can use English and when they actually aren't ready to yet, and, and it just gives so many ways into speaking and then writing in the language of the classroom, which which ultimately has to be English. That's the language of our education system, by and large, everywhere. Um, and I just think, I want to mention as well, one thing that's really important for bilingual pupils especially is that they're not just rehearsing ideas and organising their ideas. They're also organising their language. Because, you know, actually choosing how to say something in a new language is really hard. It's not just access to the, to the content. You know, I think... So I, I am personally, I don't know about you, I am a terrible language learner and I'm forever, I thank goodness for the pandemics. It, it put a stop to me doing this for a while at least. I'm forever starting, particularly Spanish. I'll start Spanish lessons and I'll give up three weeks in because all of a sudden the teacher wants me to say something. I'm like, nope, I don't want to do that. Nope, nope, nope. And I get cross. <laughs> like I'm an absolutely terrible student. Um, but I think it's that idea of, because when, when we want pupils to speak, it's not just about using like keywords, all that structuring stuff that they do in the activities we talked about, that takes thought at all levels of proficiency, but particularly earlier on. So I think this, this idea of oracy as a space to develop your language, to organize your language and your ideas is, is especially for, important for bilingual pupils. And if we can take a chance and, and let them do it in whatever languages they want, um, knowing that as the teacher you're in control of that process that arc if you like from the, the small scale like person-to-person -person spoken language that's really connected to activity up to the full written piece of work they might do or the class presentation or whatever the ultimate point is um if you're in control of that process and you know where the pupils are in that process i think it's a lot easier to have that large-scale control and then within that to say to pupils you know, use whatever languages you need to. And some of them will take Mickey and take liberties and some of them will try really, really hard and most some point in between. But that then, yeah, I think that's exactly as you said, Joe, about making it um, an agreement with the class as well. They, they've got that that progression towards the kind of written like language that we need them to get to. I think as well, also you can, you're reducing their cognitive load. If you're yeah. allowing them to do things in whichever language they choose to in that moment or at that point you're taking away all of that pressure that they then feel to try and make sense of some complicated concepts in the language that, that they're not confident in they're not proficient in yet so I think that can be a massive um a massively important thing to do and it's a it's a different way of, of scaffolding their learning I suppose but you're if you can reduce the cognitive load um, of their thinking I think that is also a helpful thing for them to be able to do. So since we started talking about pur purposeful talk for the pupils but actually what we've ended up talking about is like 
purposefully organizing talk from the teacher's perspective. And I think that's a, that's a really good point that you've got this balance to make, haven't you, between um, supporting language development and and stretching pupils on, on the development of concepts and, and curriculum. And it's, it's, it's really hard for them to handle both, especially at the early stages of proficiency. So, yeah, using their bilingual skills as a way to develop to, to lessen the cognitive load. Just it's another good area to have control, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. Um, Rob, could you explain to our listeners the key principles for effective talk? So looking at those principles and explaining them to our listeners. Yeah, well, I, I think um, we've really talked about a lot of them. Um, I'm, I'm going to draw from Pauline Gibbons because I think um, she is uh, incredibly readable and um, incredibly um, well-informed at the same time. So I really do recommend her stuff. So she comes up with a series of principles for effective talk. Um, and I'll just listen. We'll, we'll talk about them more perhaps. But she says, instructions have to be clear and explicit. So with all the kind of activities and games, um, that's built into all the activities that, that we, we're looking at today. So you've you've got clear instructions and you just need to articulate that for pupils. There, isn't it? Absolutely. You've got the structure there. So what are you expecting them to do? So it's not just... Because the thing is that if those instructions aren't clear, people will still talk, but it, it won't be getting any of them. It will be chat. And I think that the difference between chat and yeah. talk is really important. The other flip side of that is we're not just encouraging talk. Our second principle is that talk has to be absolutely necessary. So that comes back to that idea of the information gap or the purpose, the, the meaningful communication. So if you can't, so by talk being necessary, I mean that you can't complete the activity without using talk. And that's really important because there's another way of doing it. And that's that's your classic pe kids peeking over the top of the barrier game and just writing it down. Or if you've got, you know, one of those jigsaw texts, they'll say, oh, let's just swap them. You know? <laughs> so the talk becomes optional in that situation. So, so partly it's how you structure the activity, but it's also the design of the activity itself. And this is where I think all the ones that, that we've looked at on the website together are really strong. Um, there should also be a clear outcome. And I, I think that's really important when you think about how you organize it in the classroom. It's not just a time limit. So some um, pupils will finish much earlier than others. Some will finish much later. And that's okay. And that's really important, actually, that it is okay because they've achieved the outcome of the task. They've not kept it going for the right amount of time. Um, so that, again, is linked to it being purposeful and meaningful. Um, the task itself should be cognitively appropriate. And, and the one after that is the task should be integrated in the curriculum. And I think we can take those two together. That actually, even at the early stages of EL, even if you have um, a withdrawal or transition program for EL pupils, it's got to be drawing heavily on curriculum content, whether that's primary or secondary. And actually, if you're secondary and your you're subject teacher colleagues, if you're an EL specialist, um, if they're not contributing to planning, then that's a real problem. And I, and I know that's a big ask for most of the schools in the country, but I think we need to set that as a standard to aim for. Um, if you uh, are a subject teacher trying to bring more um, purposeful talk into your curriculum, then just use that full range of, of knowledge that you have. In primary, of course, you you know if, if you're the class teacher, you're drawing on the whole range of the curriculum. If you're not making sure that, that um, co-teaching, co-prep particularly happens. So if it's linked into the curriculum thoroughly then it's likely to be cognitively appropriate now we've got a huge range of stuff on the website and i think um 
Uh, a lot of those start off as a nice of general English when it's some stuff on swimming, for example, for primary, but you could easily adapt that to secondary content as well. Um, and then the last three, I think, are all about the, the pupils in the class. So she says all children have to be involved. So it's 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 not just for the pupils who need more support. It's not just for those who need less support. Um, because, you know, you can stretch children's oracy at all levels. And I know that because, you know, we, we get our PhD students and our master's students to stand up in front of others and present their work because this development of your oracy skills, it never stops. You know, it's a lifelong task. Um, so it, it is part of stretching and supporting all learners. So all children being involved and they have time to complete tasks and they know how to work in groups. So that's just, you know, making sure that it's for everyone and they've got time to do a really thorough job with it. And, and also, you know, a lot of people's... Um, are less strong at working together. So there's lots of modeling you can do around it. But I think of those principles overall, what I take away from them is, is to say, um, oracy is, is as we know, fundamental to um, what all learners are doing in the classroom. Bilingual learners probably need more specific support. That's not to say they're less good at it and they need more support in general, but there's specific aspects that, that Joe Tixi talked about um, where you need to just make sure it's it's explicit enough for them, for example, um, and they have the right resources. But lots of lots of um, exposure to that language, lots of modelling, and lots of opportunities for meaningful communication in the classroom will allow them to um, develop, organise, and rehearse ideas. And and of course, for our EL pupils, they're also doing the same: developing, organising, and rehearsing the language they need to do it as well. I think that's why it's so effective. Yes, definitely. Um, Joe, have you got any anything to add on the key principles? I think the importance of knowing how to work together, knowing how to talk to each other, knowing how to listen to one another. You know, what does that look like? I've done lots of work in, in my classrooms and that takes practice, that takes training. You know, what does it look like when you're being a good listener? You know, you're looking someone in the eye, you're nodding along, you're you know, you're engaging in that conversation, you're facing the person that you're talking to. And I'd always ask you to physically turn and face one another when they're talking to each other. So all of those um, skills need to be taught and they need to be made explicit and you need to practice them. Um, and I think when you're doing lots of talk in your classroom, you say to the children, you know, this is a success criteria. This is what I'm looking for. I am looking for people to be talking to one another, listening, engaging, asking questions, um, all of those things um, that you're expecting to see in in good talk um, and conversation, I think that's important. And I used to have it all over uh, the front of my classroom, under my board, you know, photos of them engaging in good um, discussions so that I could always refer to, you know, does your talk look like this? Does it look like this? Are you doing all of those things? Um, and having prompts that they can use. Um, we talked previously to this about um, the ABC cards, which are on the website um, and they're just prompts to support children talk and debate so the a is for agree so you teach children to say i agree with this point and actually i agree with so-and-so's point and i'd like to um, build on it that's the b i'd like to extend this point further so building on from what so-and-so said i think this um, and teaching children to challenge respectfully i think is important as well because if you don't teach them to challenge respectfully they don't always challenge <laughs> in the most appropriate way so a really good way is using these abc cards and you say the c is for challenge or actually i'd like to challenge you on that 
point. I disagree because of X, Y, and Z, and I actually, I think this, and I'd be interested to hear what your view is on that. Um, and so those simple things, I mean, it's A, B, C, and I just used to have the three under my board at the front of the class, and I could just point to them to remind them that this is how our conversations can be structured and this is how debate can happen um, in our classroom in a really um, respectful way and a purposeful way and I think teachers have to put a lot of work into that first the kind of talk that we've talked about today doesn't I don't think it doesn't just happen often um, and I think lots of it needs to be made explicit and needs to be explained to children as to why that's an important thing to be able to do and an important skill to have and how it links to things that you're going to do you know in the future Rob just talked about you know master students PhD students you still have to stand at the front you still have to make those presentations whichever level you're working at that's still a massively um, important skill to be able to have and I think it's important particularly as the children get older in my experience they don't always understand why you're asking them to do those things and why it's important so I think that is that is key is making those reasons explicit and teaching them what good talk looks like because if they've got that as a model and they've got those prompts then they're more likely to be able to take part in some high quality talking yeah that's really important joe um the scaffolding and the instruction cards as well i will link um in the podcast afterwards and as rob mentioned before um we're gonna have a blog series alongside these podcasts which will be really useful um, Rob, could you guide us, our listeners on where to go if they're looking for more reading and research? I know you've talked about Pauline Gibbons, um, her book from 2002. What other reading and research um, might our listeners find? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, I mean, my go-to for anyone would be that book. You can, you can get it really cheaply on um, your favourite internet uh, shopping behemoth or second-hand website. Um, <laughs> but I think it's... It's, it's a really brilliant guide and it really stands the test of time um, and I, I keep recommending it. Um, so I, I will we'll put, we'll put the details in the, in the description, I think. Um, if you're interested more in perhaps um, some of the research around Oracy, there's Oracy Cambridge um, have a website. We'll, we'll put the link in, but it's just oracycambridge.org. Um, they've done loads and loads of work looking at how Oracy can, can work across the curriculum. And, and there's an all-party parliamentary group on Oracy as well, so they're, they're reconnected there. Um, that's led by uh, Professor Neil Mercer. So Neil Mercer is one of those names that, that goes right back through uh, our research and understanding of Oracy and oral language development. So anything by Neil Mercer, but particularly have a look at the Oracy Cambridge website. And let's have a look at Voice21s. That's voice21.org. So they're... Um, they're a charity that, that is advocated for oracy across the curriculum. Now they have um, they have a setup where you can become like a voice 21 school or an oracy school. And, and I think there's a, a charge for that. But they've also got lots and lots of resources that you could just use for free, which is where I'd recommend starting. Um, and I think they are, um, I think they're a really clear um advocate for for oracy in the curriculum that, that's really up to date so the oracy cambridge is perhaps leaning more towards the uh the research and the policy side voice 21 more towards you know getting it embedded in schools and in the school system but of course they, they both do both as a teacher though my strong recommendation would be to pick up a second-hand copy of pauline gibbons's book and read it cover to cover uh, in a single sitting because you will, I did <laughs> do. Um, and, and I think that plus, you know, 
all the resources on on the, the website. I think you Joe, you've done a fantastic job. You know, you can see the, the just the tons of work and experience developing them. All of them can be adapted. That's what you know, as I, I've come from relatively recently, as we, we've started developing these ideas, it's just so clear that you, you can take all these and and adapt them for whatever your learners are doing and, and just to be ambitious for it as well. Um, it's it's not just it's not just talk as in chat as in a nice, happy, noisy classroom. It's that purposeful use of language to, to organise and communicate ideas because that's what sets them up for the curriculum and writing. But, you know, as we said, also for life. That's it. It's such an important life skill and it, it, it'll carry through for the rest of their lives. Uh, you'll find all of our resources uh, we've talked about today linked in the description and in our blog. All of our speaking and listening resources that we have on site will be linked there. Anything we've discussed today and any extra reading materials and research that Rob signposted will be there for you too. Thank you so much um, to both of you for being on the podcast today and for launching Why It Works. Uh, any final words from you both? Well, both of us just because we can see each other as we record this, so I think only voice is going out. So we're, we're both shaking our heads and grinning. Uh, it's just so exciting to have an evidence based EAL podcast and our thanks for organizing it. Really looking forward to, to going through different topics with you. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Rob. See you soon. Thank you.